0: We could say like data is great for experiments, for baseline, for feedback, accountability. But over time, do we want to be attached to our devices for a lifetime? Like, I'm not sure that I do. Hey there. Welcome
1: to the biohacker babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant
0: with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and check movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to
1: provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition and support your body's natural healing abilities because life is too short to not feel your best Every single day.
0: Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Renee, tuning in from Las Vegas today with my sister, Lauren.
0: Hello. Hello, tuning in from Maryland. This is funny. We're, we're, you know, doing this in reverse because we just recorded another intro. So thank you for welcoming me on this time. <laughs> yes. It's a big
1: recording day slash week. We've been just like rolling out the podcast. We got lots of fun stuff coming up. Mm hmm. <clears throat> I'm going to keep this intro really brief. I just wanted to set this up so you're not confused by whose voice you hear in just a second here. Um, But today we are doing roundtable number four. So we are back on with our friends, Dr. Jay Wiles and Molly Eastman, formerly McLaughlin. Uh, So the four of us are back on. We're talking a lot about data, everything that the four of us think you need to know, our top data points that we look at, what are the pros and cons of this, and really, really just fun conversation. But you're about to hear Molly's voice, who is kind of our lead host for the day. So in case you're like, who
0: the heck is that? That's Molly coming on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we rotate the host responsibilities. I'll just say just kind of something to keep in the back of your mind as we go through this podcast. Data is just such an enormously large topic. And even within data and wearables in the biohacking space, There is objective data and there's subjective data. Like data just (laughs) means so many things. Our minds can go in so many places. There's so many ways we can integrate it. And then I think ultimately for me and what I want to educate people on, Renee and I both want to educate on is what is the end goal? Like what is our North star for using this data? What do we want the outcome to be? Because we don't want to live our lives attached to devices for the rest of our life. Potentially. I don't think so. So If you are new to the wearable space or if you feel like you have all the wearables right now, consider your why and consider what do you want the the long-term goal to be as you go into this podcast. We're going to share lots of different things, fun things to try, things that we've learned, and it's just always so cool to have that container and kind of bounce ideas off of each other. So we hope you enjoy that. All right, let's jump in.
2: Okay, and... Welcome to roundtable number, what number are we on? I don't even know. Four. I think it's
3: four. Is it four? <laughs> four. Right. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I am <laughs> very
2: good. excited to get to dive in and talk about, so the the thing that I'm thinking about, so in case you're wondering, this is Molly Eastman uh, from Sleep is a Skill <laughs> and we are going to be diving in with our favorite people, Dr. J. Wiles, creator of Hanu Health, HRV expert, biohacker hey, hey. babes. We got Lauren. We got Renee. They're rock stars. Uh, actually, we just recorded on an aside over on the Sleep Is a Skill podcast, which is dropping very soon. All of their sleep tips, which were fantastic, that's, to you. That's a nice with-
3: shameless plug that you yeah, threw exactly, in. Yeah,
2: right I there. know. I just I had to throw that in there. <laughs> thanks, Molly. They, they brought the goods. Um, but today, I'm really, really excited because we are going to be diving into one of my favorite topics personally, and I have a sense that it is a favorite amongst all of us, which is the topic of data, biohacking mm-hmm. data, but really exploring. The pluses, the minuses, the best practices, favorite wearables, you know, questions, call or concerns, the whole world of it. So I'm thinking to kick things off, I wanted to discuss the role of data in the health and wellness journey. How has biohacking data transformed the way that we're approaching our own health and wellness? And what can the listener learn from this? You know, certain call-outs. What are we day in, day out? utilizing or any new exciting insights or breakthroughs in the world of data. So this is a big topic and we're going to get more granular, but just to begin, start with what we're all using. So to discover what we all might be able to learn from this. Uh anyone wanna jump, you know, in and share for themselves any call outs, well, there's that- only
3: there's only one wearable that's necessary for us to talk about. So <laughs>
2: The podcast I is I over.
3: Had a we, we to lead
0: with up. that,
3: right? <laughs> I mean, I have to lead with that. I feel like that uh, the board would boot me out of my own company if I didn't lead with that and and shun everything else. No, no. <laughs> if anybody actually follows or listens to what I say, I do not shun uh, any type of wearable. I, I love the idea of integrating everything, even though uh, you know I should be the Fox Guardian in house because I own my own wearable company. But yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting one because I. I think a lot of people, when they think about what I do and kind of my background, they think that I'm a super just like data centric nerd, and I and I am. However, I, I kind of roller coaster on it. I think sometimes I get burnout with data, and, I'll, yeah. and I'm sure we can all speak to that kind of with our within our own experience. But I kind of it comes in waves for me. It's almost like when I'm really into data, I'm like really into data. And then when I want to kind of take a step back, it's not like I ever remove data as a source of information from what kind of guides my health behavior choices. I just kind of minimize it. It's kind of like social media use for me, right? Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm kind of engaging in too much social media use. I need to back it down and dial it down. But I never just kind of like go away from it completely. So I know that was very kind of nebulous and maybe somewhat esoteric because I'm not really saying much. But I'm in one of those phases right now where data is actually like high driving a lot of what I do, uh, especially in terms of like uh, exercise and fitness. I've become really attuned to increasing markers related to fitness for longevity, um, mostly Mm -hmm. VO2 max. And I have to Thank Dr. Peter Atia for that. He kind of just sent me down the yeah. rabbit hole of VO2 Max research and kind of measuring it both quantitatively from wearable devices, but actually going in and doing a VO2 max test, which, if anybody's ever done, have any of y'all done a VO2 max test?
0: Yes. Oh, Very long time ago. I'm, I'm long ago.
3: Yeah. Do you remember how bad it is? It's awful. Yeah. Like it's it awful. is it's it's excruciating. Awful. Like if anybody's <laughs> ever done, I, it's comparable to if anybody's ever done a stress test for like oh, with an EKG and they put you on a treadmill, they put you on a bike, and they pretty much are just like, we're going to exhaust you as much as you can. So for like a stress test, the idea is to look at any changes in the electrical output of the heart that could be indicative of uh, arrhythmias or something related to dysfunction in the cardiovascular system, whereas VO2 max is really looking at your maximum oxygen consumption during exercise. So basically, how much oxygen can you deliver to muscular tissue in an effort to perform? And we know that as VO2 max goes up, we see longevity, health outcomes also go up as well. So for me, I've been using a lot of data from wearable devices. Uh, the, The ones that I use predominantly are like Apple Watch. So I recently got an Apple Watch. And the reason we did is because Hanu is working on building a lot with Apple Watch. Hint, hint, it's coming. And then I also use Garmin. Um, So like the Garmin Phoenix, that's kind of like been my go-to forever. And I'll look at their VO2 max estimation there, which is actually quite accurate. They found that the VO2 max estimation that you get there is generally within 5% of the actual test. And for me, I'll take that any day. I'll trust in that so that I don't have to do the VO2 max test again, because it's awful. And that was actually where mine was. It was around 5%. Um, My actual VO2 max was, excuse me, a little bit higher than what my Apple watch said. But that is the main source of data that I'm using right now for exercise. I'm really working on pumping those numbers up simply from a longevity and health span perspective, if anything else. And honestly, like it has become like a rabbit hole of gamification. like I, I'm just using it as gamification. I use a lot of other data, but I don't want to like overrun the conversation with my interest in VO2max vo- right now. But it's a fascinating biomarker for many things regarding longevity and also mental health. We know that as VO2max goes up, there is a reduction. Um, generally, this is obviously correlational data, uh, reduction in anxiety experience, and also reduction in depression. So really good for emotional well-being.
2: I'm so glad you called that out, too, because actually you're bringing up a topic that's of interest for me. I had done the test a while back. I'm putting in the chat. I don't know how you pronounce the name of this company. It's P-N-O-E, and it's a remote... Nope. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. exactly. Thanks. Yeah. Pernody? I feel bad for the company because I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. The wonderful company, they would send it to you remotely. But the mistake I made was I did it with a rower and I was doing it with a rower. It's just the way I was doing it. I should have done a treadmill. I should have known better. Um, it was just too finicky. And so, I actually really want to do this again. So, you're inspiring me. Are you, and dis- maybe I missed it in what you shared, but is there kind of like the top down things that you're doing to address this? Is it, Are yeah. any big call outs there?
3: Yeah. So, so in, or- in an effort to cr- increase maximum oxygen consumption, the biggest way to do it is to train at your VO2 max level. So, they're kind of, Uh, Not, this can send us down a rabbit trail, but I'll I'll try to keep it as concise as possible. So there are kind of two mechanisms for really enhancing VO2 max from a longevity perspective. The first one would be is exercising in more of a low heart rate or what we'd refer to as zone two, which is really going to be more for mitochondrial biogenesis. So the creation of new mitochondria, better ATP output, and just greater for endurance Now that's 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 a lower heart rate zone. Now then, up in the upper echelon of uh, heart rate zones, what we might refer to as Zone Five, this is like getting pretty close—90 to 95 percent of maximum overall heart rate. So for many people, they can just subtract. Um, It's kind of a—it's not the greatest way to do it, but it's the simplest way to do it. It's just from 220 subtract your age, and that'll give you your maximum heart rate. And then 90 to 95 percent of that heart rate is generally where we see Zone Five training. Now, to in order to increase VO2 max, I've been doing a fair amount of z- zone two, which I've always done, but I used to intermix a lot more of like high intensity interval training. And for me, that would be like a 30 seconds to 60 seconds, like max effort, but really generally around 30 seconds max effort. I'm talking about my max heart rates, 186, like I'm going like 180, 182, like really generating a lot of power, a lot of, uh, I guess, just overall stamina. However... We find that the research isn't as clear on how that improves VO2 max as does like what we call tempo training or tempo runs, which is basically doing intervals and in what Peter Atia describes kind of in his new book, Outlive, which people should absolutely read if they haven't. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful collection of like every podcast he's ever done into like a, a, a super long, but very not so technical book, like his podcasts are super technical but his book is actually a lot less technical, which I think most people will enjoy because it doesn't kind of go into too, too much of the deep science and physiology. But he does four minute intervals on and four minute intervals off at what's called your VO2 max, which is basically kind of like running and pressing as hard as you can, but sustaining it for four minutes. And then the four minutes after that interval is doing more of like just like a really light jog or even just a walk, like almost doing nothing compared to what you were doing. And then after four minutes rest, jump back into four minute interval, running as fast as you can to sustain pace at your VO2 max. So for me, for instance, this is just, again, the numbers that I'm going to throw out there. My zone two run is generally like a 930 mile or so. So like nine minutes to nine minute, 30 miles will keep my heart rate around 140. When I'm running at my VO2 max, that's probably going to be like a 645 mile, seven minute mile for four minutes. And it's tough. I mean, it's just, there's no way to put it. It's really difficult. But I've seen that over the course of the last six weeks, I have increased my VO2 max by 15%, which in six weeks is pretty, like, uh, I'm very, very happy with that. 15% increase is good because it's taken me from where I was happy with, like, I was okay. Well, I'll say I was okay with the number to now putting me pretty close to the bracket that I want to be in. Uh, but I've got a long ways to go because my Goal is to increase VO2 max to the point of the generation behind, me, or I should say the decade behind me. Their elite level is where I want to be. So not the elite level for you know my age group, like the 35 to 45 year olds. I want to be in like the 25 to 35-year-old elite level. So eh, anyway, rabbit hole. But I think it's, I mean, I just still think it's one of the best metrics that we have for longevity in terms of exercise output. And, uh, it, it's just, it's hard work. Like there's, there's no doubt about it. Like if you want to increase your VO2 max, you can, I think everybody can do it. And it's a great data point to follow with your wearable technology, but it's not, uh, it's not a comfortable thing to do. That's for sure.
0: That's yeah, so it's just stress test over and over again. And uh, the clients stressful. that I see that track it and I'm not personally tracking, but I'm watching my clients track it and try to move the needle. And the ones that are having the greatest success are leading into both of those extremes, like a healthy balance of the zone two and the higher intensity work with adequate recovery in between. And I never heard the four minutes on four minutes off. What I've read about VO2 is that recovery interval is so much shorter than you want it to be because oh, you is. have to live in that uncomfortable range. So if you're going all out, like say you're running uphill on a treadmill, hitting that VO2 max, your recovery time is going to be <laughs> basically a quarter of what you want it to be. So you're not waiting for the heart rate to fully recover. You're going right back in. So it does feel in, in extremely intense. And I did a version of this on the Carol bike yesterday where you do 30 sprints in a, I think it's like a 10 minute period. You only have eight seconds to recover in between. So it's not even recovery. The idea is that you're recovering completely on the back end. But the takeaway here is that it does suck, but we do hard things because of the 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 benefits on the back end.
3: Exactly, exactly. And And for me, it's, mentally, instead of pushing against it, this is kind of getting into the psychology of this type of training instead of just pushing against it because every fiber of your being, when you're doing this type of workout, is just going to say like your brain stop. is say, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> you're dying. You're dying. Like you can't do this anymore. Or like you actually will pass out and die. Like Your brain's telling you all of this nonsense. And so I have found that like, I just get into this place of like full on like acceptance of like, this is how it is. Like I've got two more intervals left. It's going to take me another 15 minutes and all will be over with. And it still sucks. Like I'm not going to lie. It still sucks. But I think like, instead of like pushing back against it cognitively and just like wanting it to be over, instead just kind of thinking like, yeah, this is what it is. I'm going to accept it. And this is good for me. Like this will help me to, And I link it with my values. Right. So like for me, when I'm 90 years old, I want to be playing down on the ground with my grandkids and wrestling. With them and then get up and go do a hike with them and all of these things that most 90-year-olds aren't doing. Like I'm training for that. And again, I'm starting to sound just like I'm re- repeating everything Peter Ortia says, but he's very convincing. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, it's good I information.
1: <laughs> uh, speaker, speaking of Peter Ortia, have you all seen Limitless? Yeah. I know Lauren has.
2: I haven't actually seen it. I know I'm so behind. It's so funny. You have to uh, watch it. But I yeah. think Disney one Plus. of the episodes
1: Disney Plus, Plus? This is not a Disney ad. Not sponsored by Disney. (laughs) Um, But anyways, Peter Rottia is on there. And I think one of the episodes they do a lot about VO2 Max when he's training for, I think, the rope climb possibly.
3: I think that's right. Yeah.
1: Anyways, really, really good. I thought it was an entertaining show.
2: So good. Yeah.
3: No.
1: I feel
2: like it's very Disney.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) Very Disney. It's not very
1: Hollywood. I'm like, how to
2: motivate people? Take the
0: God of Hollywood and make him do impossible things. And then you too (laughs) can believe that you uh, can do
2: hard things.
3: (laughs) They should have done it with Mickey. I mean, just like had Chris Hemsworth dressed as Mickey Mouse. Right, exactly. More convincing. More
2: approachable. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So I love this VO2 Max. I wasn't expecting that um, direction, which I think is so important. Would we imagine for all of us our experience that... Um, say, if we were to endeavor into VO2 Max, certainly on my podcast, we haven't really discussed that much at all. So I appreciate this. And would we imagine that we might be able to see changes in our wearable data as a result of training for that? Have we seen that with clients or ourselves?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to dominate the conversation here. Um, so all the listeners would be like, Jay, shut up. He keeps talking. <laughs> Well, at least I feel like you know know your
2: stuff, man. Yeah, you're excited. I love the excitement. I
3: I hope I don't forget it all. I feel like uh, it's for me. It's like when I get into something, like I really get interested in it, and probably my wife, uh, my poor wife, she probably Ah. thinks like, Jay, are you reading yet another research study, another book, like buying another device? Yeah, yeah. yeah." So for
1: me, uh, Jay, I would love to see your genetic report. Like, I know. On? Yes.
3: Well, I'm working on that. So again, uh, okay. uh, shameless plug for Wild Health. Um, so oh, anybody yeah. who's like interested in like genomics testing, DNA methylation, uh, like age testing, I, I always recommend the guys over at Wild Health. So Mike Dawson, Mike Mallon, I mean those the, those guys are amazing at what they do. So we're doing a lot of this testing. I don't have it just yet, but we've done some pre testing. We'll do some post testing. The, the changes that I've seen from a biometrics perspective, and obviously, if anybody kind of follows kind of what I do, obviously, I'm checking heart rate variability. I'm looking at resting heart rate as two primary biometrics. VO2 max is very interesting because I've seen this linear increase in direction. But what I've also seen paired with this is a lowering in overall resting heart rate and then also a increase in heart rate variability. Mm. Which for me is actually a really interesting one because I do so much for nervous system functioning that it can be difficult for me to move the needle much on that one just because I've kind of like tried so much stuff. So I feel like I'm maximizing the benefit as much as possible on that end. But this is one that I have seen an appreciable change. I mean, it's not a minor change. It's an appreciable change. So whereas generally my resting heart rate, like if you're looking, let's say at low heart rate on an overnight score with aura uh, or with whoop would generally kind of bottom out or be at its lowest range at around 46 to 47 beats per minute. And over the last course week, uh, the last course, uh, the course of the last six weeks, I have seen a reduction to around 42 to 43. 3 beats per minute. So that's like mm. a 3 beat per wow. minute difference in 6 weeks in my low wow. state heart rate, which is pretty good. I mean, I think that in general we want to see kind of that lowering lowered resting heart rate and lowered average and kind of that 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 bottom uh if you will shelf. So I've seen that and I've seen heart rate variability increase. I will say that if I do a week of workouts that are a little bit more intensive, so generally I do two VO2 max workouts a week. If I step it up to three or so, I'll start to see the declination in recovery. So I'll start to see that in heart rate variability. I'll see an increase in heart rate, but it's great because I'm using the data to inform me when I'm pressing a little bit too hard. And I have the tendency mm. to do that. The first week I tried this funny little off story, The first week I started doing BO2 max training, I did four in one week that was just really dumb by the way don't ever try it it sucked <laughs> doing it and then also my recovery scores were awful um it was impairing my sleep it was impairing my nervous system recovery and functionality uh heart rate variability suppressed obviously heart rate increased and it wasn't good i was overtraining like classic overtraining 101 being seen here so again it's another opportunity to use that data to better inform my decision making and say eh, Four is too much. Dial it down. Tried three, still too much. Dial it down. Two is the sweet spot.
2: Mm, So good. And so, and how about for our biohacker babes? Are there areas that you have um, that you're playing with with your data that have you as excited as Dr. J, or maybe even a percentage of excitement as Dr. J has right now? Anything that's getting you excited going?
1: It's it's really awesome to hear about the VO2 max stuff because I think I need to dive a little bit deeper into that. I kind of have been yeah. like the lazy person when it comes to like the workout heart rate zones. Yeah, I go to Orange Theory, I strap this thing on, it tells me if I'm in the blue, the green, the orange, the red, and I'm like, okay, I got it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yes. so I have some new inspiration to explore that a little bit more. So thanks for that. I would say for like other data and trackers, well, one, I read an article the other day and they said stress trackers will be the new step trackers of
2: 2023.
1: Mm. So Dr. J, that's good news for you. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) totally. But I've really been lately into combining the aura ring with natural cycles. So for the ladies out there, I wanted to test it out to see if it was actually legit with how the data correlated to your cycle. And it has been on point for six months in a row now. So for women that are using maybe just like a regular app, but they have an aura ring, I would say get the Natural Cycles to sync it, because you know if your cycle, my cycle range is twenty eight to thirty two days. Some you know if I'm a little more stressed one month, it might be a little bit longer kind of thing. But the aura ring with Natural Cycles has been like to the minute accurate.
3: So is that an app, Renee? So Natural Cycles is that like a separate app that like takes in or aggregates the data and then provides just kind of more information, more robust information? Yep. Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. Very so,
1: yep. the partnership I think is within the last year. It's still pretty new, but uh cuz the Aura was trying to do some of that, but Natural Cycles has so much more information for women on there. I really think it's a good match. So,
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's No. my favorite
0: it's,
1: at the moment. It's
2: such a game changer. I mean, the more that we have people realizing and dialing in on the difference that happens for our hormones, if you are of menstruating age and then can layer that in with your wearable trackers and stress, um, you know, kind of techniques, certainly this is the perfect group to discuss some of these uh, things that are coming out. It's so, so huge because we do see that reliable often dip into more of a sympathetic response state in the second half of our cycle pretty routinely. So, So fantastic. Yeah.
1: And something that might be coming out soon, we actually interviewed Dr. Amatma Shah on our podcast. She's a fertility expert. She's doing a lot of research on just looking at basal body temperature. And there's going to be some interesting information coming out. Like we can learn a lot more from temperature than we possibly ever thought.
0: Mm.
1: So stay tuned on
2: that. Yeah. Amazing. Exciting. What about you, Lauren? Any call outs? Well, the CGM is just always a standard.
0: It's the, you know, the target is always moving. There's always something new to learn in that realm. And I just, uh, I'm just so humbled by the CGM and what it can offer us as far as um, some feedback on lifestyle, sleep, nutrition, things we've talked about in this podcast. Um, I would say the second thing, something that came to mind when we're talking about VO2 max blood chemistry, I've seen, this is simply a theory and observational, but I've seen with clients that are tracking VO2 max that we're seeing some improvement in blood chemistry markers over time. You know, correlation doesn't mean causation, but potentially if we're upregulating oxygenation and improving blood flow and circulation and our recovery, we would then see downstream like in our physiology that would be expressing. So I am starting to kind of put some pieces together and potentially seeing some things being improved without zeroing in on like, this marker is out of range. We got to fix this. It's like, what do we need to do overall to improve our training? progressive overload, look at our HRV and our recovery, how do we improve all of these holistic variables? And then can we see a change because we've enacted a change systemically? So I I think like maybe stay tuned on that. It's kind of something I'm starting to put the pieces together on. And then lastly, I don't want to take this conversation too far in a different direction, but when you first asked about data, like something that I am really rabbit holing in right now is looking at my subjective data around microdosing. So I started a new microdosing protocol and because I am very data number driven as a biohacker because we geek out on it in these podcasts, I started tracking and I, I have this particular journal right now that is very uh, question specific. And in the past, when I'm microdosing, I've always loved a rating system. One out of 10, where's my energy today? Where's my mood today? Because we know as biohackers, it's really easy to put those numbers together and tell a story and a narrative so we can see the change over time, right? Like numbers are just really easy to digest. But I'm finding that the subjective data, uh, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but there's also this opportunity to really push myself to describe the changes that I'm feeling and experiencing and living and so through word and writing and adjectives, like all this stuff is coming up that I can really track over time, that it is such a valuable feedback tool. So again, not to take the conversation another direction, but always coming back to this balance of objective and subjective data. How much can we learn from the subjective? And what is the ultimate goal of collecting the numbers? Can we integrate it to then use the subjective data to our, you know, to our benefit? Because it becomes I think like, more connected to intrinsic motivation, or I think we could say like data is great for experiments, for baseline, for feedback, accountability. But over time, do we want to be attached to our devices for a lifetime? I, I, like, I'm not sure that I do. I don't know. Like we could check yeah. in in a few months yeah. in a year, <laughs> but I think my ultimate goal is to get off of them. So how do I build intrinsic motivation by balancing those two like inp- input or feedback sources? So- that's kind of where my head went out. Like, how do we change the numbers into something subjective that can really be a tool for dialogue with our body and our organ systems, and and the way that we perceive stress, recovery, mood, motivation, all of those things.
3: Mm. Mm. I, I I like this, Lauren, because what resonates with me or where my mind goes on this one is that I try to preach to individuals. Maybe that's a bad word to use. I try to teach individuals that. In an effort to sustain behavior change, in an effort to sustain motivation, everything that we do has to be values-laden. So it has to come back to like, why are we doing what we're doing? Like, what's truly the value system that's behind what we're doing? Mm-hmm. Because if it's just simply a vanity metric, well, I want to get my VO2 max up. If I simply had that level of drive just to make a benchmark in terms of my metrics... I might get there, but the sustainability of it, uh, probably not much. But if I link it or tie it to my value system, and I say, is this helping me live a values-based or a values-driven life? Or is this not helping me live a values-driven life? Like That's probably the better sniff test or litmus test for what I'm doing. So for me, it's always like, how is this linked or tied to this uh, an objective data outcome but also where is the subjective and values driven component so i'm not just simply increasing my vo2 max even for longevity why would i why do i want to live longer like well, who cares oh well i want to live longer so that i can spend valuable time with the people i love to cuddle with my kids and my grandkids and my wife. like All of those things matter to me. And I am much more likely to make sense of the data and to have excitability around the data if I have that at the forefront of my mind. So I tell people all the time, it's like if you're trying to lose weight and you simply say, I want to go from 200 pounds to 180 pounds, well, that's fine to have that objective kind of data-driven goal, like going from 200 to 180. Sure, that's great but the likelihood of success there goes way down if that's simply the sole thing that people are going after or if it's just like aesthetics i want to look better like maybe that will drive you for a certain period of time but it's not going to give you that deep level of intrinsic value and motivation that it will be if you tie it to the then if you tie it to the things that truly matter to you which again it just comes down to doing an assessment of am I, or what I'm doing, is it in line with my value system? Is it helping me or hindering me from living a values-driven life?
0: What's up, biohackers? Have you been seeing red light devices everywhere and thinking, why would I need a box that shines bright red light? You may be thinking, our ancestors didn't use these fancy light boxes. And you are correct. So what has changed and why do we need them? The answer is mitochondrial dysfunction. Our modern world and lifestyles have become quite toxic, where we are constantly being bombarded by environmental stressors, poor stress management, and we're being undernourished by a less nutrient-rich food supply, which is causing a breakdown of optimal mitochondrial function, which is responsible for our energy production. Some of the classic signs and symptoms of mitochondrial dysfunction, which I think a lot of us have come to believe are normal, include fatigue, poor endurance and recovery, weakened and vulnerable immune systems, digestive issues, chronic muscular and joint pain, vision problems, headaches, migraines, nausea, loss of appetite. Now, I know these sound all quite dramatic, but I think we all experience experience them on a small scale throughout our lives. These are all downstream effects of modern living. Now, the first step towards optimizing our mitochondria is to reduce exposure from these environmental stressors like commercial household and beauty products, toxic chemicals in our air and our homes, poor air quality, mold, mycotoxins, also underlying infections and nutrient deficiencies. But once we can optimize our nutrition and exposure, it is time to turn the lights on with red light therapy. Red Light Therapy, also called Photobiomodulation, or PBM, utilizes specific wavelengths of light to affect our cellular health. As LightPath LED founder Scott Kennedy says, red light does one thing. It helps the mitochondria produce more ATP energy, and from there it creates a cascade of effects. There seem to be endless benefits that red light can bring to the human body. New studies on PBM are emerging every single day, but some of the well-known benefits include faster wound healing, better circulation, stronger vision and ocular health health, improved mood and energy, optimized fertility, and definitely less pain and inflammation. Some people believe we should consider red light a nutrient, and when combined with near-infrared light, it can penetrate deep into our cells to support the nervous system, organs, muscles, skin, and so much more. There are a multitude of red light devices on the market, but we encourage looking for high-quality bulbs, efficient power output, focused beam angles—I know that's a fancy one—and specific and varied wavelength options, plus very important decrease EMF production— This is why LightPath LED is our chosen device because they check the boxes on all of these very essential variables. We cannot recommend this company more. And personally, I really don't go a single day without using my LightPath device. So if you're curious and interested and you want to check out LightPath, you can go to LightPathLED.com. That's www.LightPathLED.com. And you can check out their new diesel line, which is really incredible pulsing light. Some really cool benefits there, which we've talked about on our Instagram. So head over there, check out the benefits. But you can use code BiohackerBabes at checkout to save 10%. That's LED and code BiohackerBabes. All right. Enjoy the red light and let's get back to the show. I think that that's so important on a macro level, and I think just to come back to maybe reasons why people would do VO two max. I, I yes, I think that long term, like core driven benefit, like cost analysis is really valuable. But like short term, we could be saying I want to improve my VO two max because I am loyal to myself, and I want to prove that to myself through behavioral commitments and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like loyalty could be a macro goal, but also short term. I'm running the scientific experiment because I want to prove to myself that I can show up to myself and be loyal to my health. So that could be more of like a micro versus macro.
3: Right.
2: So good. What um, about I'll- you, Molly? Yeah, I can weigh in on a couple interesting ones. So, one just to bring it back to, I love this kind of the the why. Why are we even caring about data? Why is it important, and could it be problematic? I know with Dr. J, the uh, kind of infusion of stoicism, and which can feel like, wait, how does that go in with you know what we're doing? <laughs> but really getting clear on um simplicity and and what are we getting out of this attention to these numbers? And I think to Lauren's point, um I think it's so one of the th- reasons that I love this conversation of data, as I really believe it's another angle in at personal development in a lot of ways. So it it allows. So I work with so many, especially men, which is really interesting. Um, in the world of sleep optimization and uh, you know, improving overall health and well being. And I think because of this data di- driven approach, it allows a different angle into self awareness and seeing uh, suddenly when you see trends and numbers of just even the most- simple of things like Oh my gosh! I actually I thought I was waking up at around the same time. It's like the, one of the most common things I see all the time. We have hundreds of people on our Oura ring data dashboard, and one of the most common things I see is people say I wake up at around the same time every day. And then we look at the numbers, and then it's actually this roller coaster all over the place. And then only when they see it in black and white can there just be this weird aha moment of like a merging of subjective and objective realities. So blind spots, all of us, blind. All of us, totally, a hundred percent. So, a blind spot for me that I've been really working on, which is the most low tech thing in the world, is walking. Walking is like my new thing. I shouldn't say new thing, but obsession. It's (laughs) it's. I don't know if I'm quite at the Dr. J level of excitement about this, but I am pretty (laughs) excited. Because one of the metrics and data points that I'm pulling from this is I made this kind of personal promise that for every single day of 2023, I would get at least 10,000 steps a day. Now, there's a lot of um, ruffles around, oh, 10,000 steps. Where does that come from? Is that, you know, even what's that based in? Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Having said that, that is my new baseline. I'm not even going to get into that, but that <laughs> is my new, um, how I'm relating to it is like that's the bottom with the opportunity to even go. You know more so than that in certain days that work out, but bare minimum that's the bottom. And I've just added in rucking. I'm kind of late to the rucking party, uh, yes. right? The rucking, nice. totally. Such a game changer. And so what I've been really having fun with is just noticing this slow dip in heart rate improvement in HRV just by simply bringing this about, which it's so on brand for everything that I'm speaking to with sleep as a skill, because it's just an opportunity for us to physically get ourselves outside more and in a creative way. I love this concept of I'm even playing with adding on new packages for my programs where... The knowledge is that we would both be on calls while walking to for the coaching calls, which would be like a whole other, you know, just
3: different. With, with with your rucksack on.
2: I mean, I haven't called that out, but I think I need to add that in there.
3: And that could we'd be a challenge, have, man. Right? That could be a challenge to do, you know, especially if you're out in the Austin heat, you know, going oh. up some hills on the phone with you know forty to sixty I'm pounds. Like baby seal
2: over here, yeah, totally. <laughs> So cool. So, um, so that's my latest obsession. The other thing that just for, you know, the, the novelty of it, I'll just drop that. I'm excited, about I just added, um, I just got on the wait list for. Did anyone see about the smart toilet coming out? Putting it in there. No, do chat.
3: explain. Does it yes, assess yeah. like stool and yes. urine? So, it, and
2: so, you know, wonderful. we'll see. This, this is out of uh, Withings. So, if anyone hasn't heard of this, this is at CES. It um, got a lot of acclaim or, or, or buzz, I guess you could say. And the thinking is that this is a possible wave of the future where we have these smart homes enabled in all areas uh, of our household uh, that includes the ability to have direct hormone testing through your uh urine analysis. And so I just got on the wait list for that and I'm speaking with the company around possibilities to be able to test this out and see what could be possible there. Certainly from a sleep perspective, hormonal imbalances being, you know, a, a part of this conversation. So I'm excited about that. But that's a in the future but i do believe that there's a lot of new exciting data breakthroughs you know that are coming um and i think that that goes back to what renee was talking about on the stress management wearables so i'd love if we could take a look at you know kind of shifting to that topic and i feel like dr j of course uh that's like your bread and butter <laughs> but um yeah. You know, understand. So, for people listening and saying stress management wearables, what would that even look like? And then what type of protocols would come about with that? And for, you know, so certainly for my listeners looking to optimize their sleep, but for all of your listeners for overall health and well being, why would that be important? And what are some of these things that might be coming or that they could get on this train now?
1: What's up, biohackers? Renee here. Do you ever have a hard time falling asleep because you have a lot on your mind? When I have a lot going on in my life, I definitely experience this. And ideally, we want our sleep latency, which is the time to fall asleep, to be around 10 minutes. But when I have that racing mind, sometimes this can be like 30 minutes, maybe even an hour. So I find sometimes it's really hard to shut my brain off. But I started taking a sleep breakthrough and I immediately noticed that I was able to fall asleep quickly. Back to around that 10-minute goal, which is amazing. I also found that the sleep quality was much better. So I track my sleep using my different sleep trackers, and I saw that I actually have better quality with more time spent in deep sleep and then even REM sleep. And the really cool thing about Sleep Breakthrough is that it's a natural formula which provides the body with the precursors to melatonin and the necessary molecules to produce it naturally. This approach helps prevent dependency, down-regulation, and the negative side effects commonly associated with sleep supplements. We call this the sleep hangover. Have you ever felt like really groggy the next morning? Ugh, that's the worst, I hate that. (laughs) So sleep breakthrough is really nice because you don't get that. And we actually had Matt Gallant on the podcast from Bioptimizers where he talked more about this amazing formula and all the science that went into creating it. So definitely check out the show notes. I will link to that podcast if you wanna take a deeper dive. But in the meantime, if you're struggling with sleep, I highly recommend you check out Sleep Breakthrough. Just give it a try. I think it could be a game changer. So all you need to do is visit sleepbreakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes and then use code biohackerbabes10 at checkout and that'll get you 10% off any order. All right, wishing you an amazing night of sleep. Let's get back to the show.
3: You want me to start? <laughs> Maybe you should start.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I could oh, okay. I could put just a little yes, a little please. lead up to because I know Dr. is going to crush yeah. this. Yeah. I think just like <laughs> the big question of why do we want to be looking at this? I just think it is it's really the next piece of overall health and wellness. I think we've been talking about the fitness, the nutrition, the, even sleep, right? Has been in yeah. the last couple of years. But I think people are now more stressed than ever. Obviously, the mental health illness or issue that's going on right now. And no one has really addressed the stress piece. I think it's been like, oh, the woo-woo people do like the meditation and mindfulness, maybe like a gratitude journal, but it hasn't been more than that. And I think I just think people are ready for the next step. And I think also being able to bring technology in, I think that just like pushes people further, right? Like even tracking steps, right? Molly, as soon as that piece of technology was out, people were like, get your 10,000 steps in. Um, Yeah. You know, things like MyFitnessPal tracking your food. It was like once that was an option on every phone, people started doing it. So I think as we have things like Hanu Health coming out, um, I think people are just going to jump on board much faster. Mm. Um, And then also with the Mm. longevity piece, a lot of people are talking about health span and longevity. And I think stress is the number one thing here. And I, was talking about this on a podcast the other day with Lauren. I read this awesome article where they interviewed 100 people that lived to over 100. And they said, give us just your one piece of advice for people. And I only saw one person say anything about what they ate. Mm. And it, it, a little embarrassing for me because my background's in nutrition, but I'll be honest. One person was like, I eat a lot of vegetables every day. I'm like, awesome. But yeah. most of them were like, it was all about the social piece. It was about reducing stress. Yeah, Yeah. Um, going Mm -hmm. out with friends and family. So I think that people are ready Mm -hmm. to attack the next piece of health.
2: Mm. So Mm. well said.
3: Totally agree. You know, the interesting thing about emotional health is that it has been the redheaded stepchild of the kind of health pillars for the longest time. And the reason being is probably twofold. One is that there's still plenty of stigma behind it. Who wants to like tell other people I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, like I have emotional dysfunction, Whereas it's like, oh, I eat like shit, you know, I sleep like shit and I don't work out. Like people are more willing to kind of discuss that and have people step alongside and help with that area. But emotional health has really been kind of the thing that's put over to the side where we all acknowledge, yeah, it's a kind of a part of health. I know I need to get a better grip on my stress response, my emotional health, my relationships aren't the greatest. It's like there's this acknowledgement there without a lot of action and to your point, Renee, like we are in the middle of a widespread pandemic of just chaos when it comes to mental health. And there's not a ton of light at the end of the tunnel. But I do believe we're headed in the right direction with a lot of our ability to integrate things like biometrics and physiology monitoring with evidence-based therapeutics and and I and I can get a little bit more into, a monologue on that and I'll try not to but I think that the direction we're going there is going to be something that is going to help especially to Lauren's point people to identify their blind spots I can't tell you how many people I've met that it say I, don't, I live a stress-free life like you know I'm, I'm doing good like I'm cruising along they put Hanu on tells a completely different story <laughs> and we're mm-hmm. like Ugh. That, we see yeah. a lot of dysfunction there like when you get rattled like you don't really recover well you get really rattled and so I think that just like with blood glucose, maybe not a lot of people understood kind of what glucose was doing throughout the day. They started to see it with a CGM, and now they're like, uh oh, and then I need to do something about that. Like, because this has been going on for years and years and years. People intuitively understand the necessity for exercise. They intuitively understand sleep, but that is also one. I'm sure you can speak to Molly that many people, especially hard chargers, until recently, like saw as like kind of the bot. They were the sleep was the bottom feeder, right? It's like you know, three, four hours of sleep. Who cares? Like I'm crushing it in life, and then they die, <laughs> and it's like yes. eh, maybe not so much. <laughs> and so. I think what's happening now is that we've identified kind of the role of nutrition. We've identified and we're making action steps on, on, on exercise and then also on sleep. And now it's kind of the point where we're like, okay, it's unavoidable that we must assess and talk about and open up this discussion of emotional and mental health and how that relates to overall health. And if it continues to be the redheaded stepchild... That's in the corner that we just don't talk about and we kind of ignore, but acknowledge, yeah, he's there, but don't actually do something about it's going to further lead us down a path of destruction. And obviously I am a psychologist and I own a mental health company that does stress monitoring. So I understand fully my bias, but I think that it's not just me and those who own companies like mine who are preaching this right now. I think it's really everybody's come to the conclusion that this is paramount to health. And so... When it comes to kind of what we're seeing right now in the data biometric space, obviously Hanu's doing it. And we're doing it in a way that's different than most people, right? We're looking at heart rate variability continuously, a very fine, granular, microscopic view of somebody's stress response. But also for us, we're saying, well, how do we integrate? Because I and I, and I preach this all the time, but with all the data and information without any actionable steps doesn't give us anything. Like it's basically useless. And I am of the mindset too that simply tracking stress and then doing something like breath work or biofeedback or meditation. I think these are immensely helpful. I think that these are paramount to really high quality emotional health, but I don't think that they suffice. I think that when people are truly having emotional dysregulation, which is more people than not, by the way, I think we want to make it clear that it's more people than not are having problems with emotional health and mental health. Uh, When we simply kind of go and utilize some of these targeted therapeutics, they can help transiently. But for a lot of these individuals, we are stuck so much in this narrative and so much in this kind of cognitive fusion of all of these things that we believe define us as who we are, that that problem is also not being addressed. And this is actually really the direction that Hanu is going, just to be completely transparent and that we want to integrate all of these amazing health behaviors that we know are really good for mental health, good nutrition, good sleep, you know, really you know high quality exercise, but then also bring in kind of the more uh psychotherapeutic and counseling type of therapies that are used and qu- found to be evidence based and layer that on top of things as well because people can do all of these great behaviors for emotional mental health and well-being but if they're not Addressing kind of the inner dictator that's kind of directing all of their decisions, then all of those things are going to be great acutely, but it's also just going to be still there and they have to address it as well. So I think that in this world of data and biometrics, we need something that can help open people's eyes to their blind spots, but then we also have to follow it up with really good, rigorous approaches and aggressive approaches to enhancing stress resiliency and mental and emotional health just like if we saw someone had a really low vo2 Max to go back to that analogy we wouldn't just say okay you have a low vo2 max see you later no we would give a protocol a precise protocol and I think that's where we're headed right now with stress monitoring it's not just saying oh hey you have you know low stress medium stress high stress type thing and you know good luck go do a breathing exercise I'm not saying that that's a bad thing it's kind of what predominantly hanu does right now, but our next iteration and where we're going is you, using intuitive AI and machine-based learning to provide a very precise roadmap that includes those components, but also includes the mechanisms for ch- helping people to change kind of the inner dictator and kind of the more or less the, uh, the, the kind of cognitive spiraling infusion. I know that I went way too far into that than I probably should have, but I think it speaks just to my passion for helping people to re- realize that emotional health cannot be the redheaded stepchild anymore. Like it just, it just can't. And 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 I think until it becomes completely destigmatized, which I don't think it ever will. Honestly, I think it'll always be kind of like more or less stigmatized compared to all, all the other health pillars. Until it becomes more forefront in our, in our minds in terms of health and health span, I, I think we're in big trouble. All right, I'm gonna get yeah. off.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I, wha- I think we all. <laughs> It's like hard. Yes. Agree. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought up the narrative because yes, I think the pendulum has swung to the other end of mental health where there is more talk about it and, you know, quote unquote openness around this idea, but it's gone too far where it's, it's now like a guise. It's a wall that we hide behind because we can just, we can be the stress and we can hide behind that. And it's really just an excuse to not be radically honest and look at the things that we need to do to change and show up better in the world. And so narratives are created just so easily and thoughts become proteins so then it's like embedded in our physiology and it's expressing in our DNA so it's it's really freaking important as you said <laughs> but um I think when it comes to data we can create a whole new narrative that may not be positive so how do we stay open i find that that is really the challenge for us as a human species with the brains that we have like how do we stay open and not get attached to a particular story and just as you said you have Clients to say, I'm not stressed. We look at HRV. Oh my God, it's telling a different story. I see it on glucose. I eat so healthy. I'm like, well, your glucose doesn't say that. Same with sleep. Uh. Like we all could give so many examples of that. But then also when we give actionable advice and we do some experiments, how do you also not get attached to that new narrative? Like we always mm-hmm. have to keep coming back to let's detach, let's stay open, let's let's know that. Our bodies are dynamic and changing every single day. We are not the same person that we were like in, from a physiological perspective yesterday as we are today, as we will be tomorrow. And I think the the coaching stuff is just so important. That's why I love plant medicines potentially as a behavioral change aspect because mm-hmm. the brain is just so strong and dictates a lot of this. We keep going down the same path. Like we take the same, you know, the analogy is the same Um The same snow. What is the word? The ski route. No, the the train. What is the snow? The snow trails. trails. Yeah. Trail. Trail. It's the trail. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We take the same ski trail because it's comfortable, right? We don't go through the woods. We don't go off of like fresh snow and make new tracks and plant medicine, which calms down the default mode network and allows us to create these new paths so we can stay open and have a new narrative whenever we see fit and wish to change that. Because What's true today is not going to be true tomorrow. So I think there's a lot of exciting things, but I'm glad you brought that up, the behavioral component. And I'm just really fired up about how potentially plant medicines could feed into that rewiring of the brain.
2: Mm, Mm. So good. And so, and Renee, you touched on too from your from the article. Is is this a uh, area that you're also looking at with other types of wearables um, that you can speak to too from the stress reduction perspective? Are there certain strategies that, like in your own life? I don't mean to just put it for Renee, but I know you you mentioned that article. Curious. Um,
1: yeah, I mean. I've been looking at the stress component for a long time. I was kind of forced to, you know, and I mean, you guys know my story. In 2008, I graduated and just totally crashed and burned because I was the person sleeping four hours a night, type A, go, 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 go. I still have that person inside me. I'm always fighting against that, right? So for me, like I use, you know, I use my Hanu device. I use the brain tap. I use the amp coil. Like I incorporate a lot of these technologies to support my parasympathetic nervous system. How can I offset the stress that I maybe still take on? So, I mean, it's it's a never ending journey, I would say, and and I still love the data. I'm a big fan of the data. But I had a really interesting experience lately. I was at a Healthspan Mastermind, and two of the speakers were talking about data sovereignty. Hmm. and they said, I will not wear any wearables. I don't want anyone to have any possible data on me. And I'm looking down and I'm like, I have my honey strap on, my bio strap, my aura. I'm like, just yeah. like, don't look Your data at costume. Yeah. <laughs> <Your> data <laughs> costume. Yeah. Maybe had a CGM on that day too. I don't know. But yeah, I was like, gosh, I've never been in a room where I actually feel like the oddball to have all the data collectors on. But It was interesting hearing that perspective. They said, I don't want anyone to have my data out there. And actually, this is almost a question back to you guys. What are your thoughts on on that? Are we concerned? I know obviously different companies are handling your data differently. Some are straight up just selling your data. I know there's a concern around do insurance companies eventually get a hold of that Mm. and use that against you down the road versus other companies are not selling your data and it's protected. I don't know. Thoughts?
3: Mm. Hanu does not sell your data. Your data is protected. Ooh, Just so everybody yay! is Thank clear. you. Thank you, you know. for that. Yeah.
1: Thank and you. Yes.
3: And when we do research, it's internal and everything is uh, disassociated from your name. So your name doesn't obviously get published when we throw data out there. I mean, we're looking at how effective is this? Um, And are we seeing active change? And if not, like Hanu wants to do something about it. Like we don't want to just kind of keep going down the same path if it's not working. This is an interesting discussion point because I kind of lean in both directions. Maybe it's just the cognitive dissonance that's going on in my brain right now. Because mm-hmm. it's like obviously like, you know, the uh, from an ethics perspective, like I, I'm a researcher and a scientist. So for me, I understand the nature of even why a company would sell data. Again, Hanu does not... But I understand why they would, because most of it is for research-oriented purposes. Um, so it's for publication. It's for, for the advancement of science. And so I understand that intuitively. I've been a part of these studies. I've been a part of you know being a principal investigator for these studies. So I, I get it. I also, though, kind of from the consumer standpoint, when we see kind of how there have been data leaks and information being passed around and that has negatively impacted people, I think when they think about their own physiological data, when they think about their own, you know, blood biomarker or genetics data, it can be scary to think about how that could be maybe potentially utilized against you in some level or capacity. I tend to err more on the side of not being afraid of companies. And maybe I don't think it's necessarily an inherent trust for companies, but it's for me, it's like I gain so much value from it that it offsets the potential downside of data being handled in maybe a way that isn't as kosher for me. So I think it's just a cost-benefit analysis. I just tend to uh, think that I gain enough benefit from it to not have that aspect be enough to dissuade me from use i'm in that camp
0: too and maybe it's a little naive but i think i i believe in the greater good of science and i'm so eager to get more information so i'm like whatever you need to start giving us more information things on hrv and glucose where there isn't a lot of long-term good clinical research especially in Mm -hmm. a healthy population and i want it so if i can feed into that and get more out of this and also life is too short like give it to me (laughs) (laughs)
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and to your point, the, those data that are being used are being used to advance science, but also to make the product that you're using that you're already gaining value, hopefully from even better yet. Um, so it's it's not like it's out there like, you know, you got the mad scientist thinking, oh, how can I use this for world domination? There might be those companies that are doing that, but really it's for the advancement of science. And I think that there maybe, and again, this could be naive, but there has to be kind of like this hope that the information is used for a level of altruism for the greater good of society and humanity, or at least that's how I conceptualize it as someone who owns a data science, you know, digital mental health company, is that the the way we utilize data is in an effort to improve, um, not to not improve kind of what we do and 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 improve the life and well-being of people. So again, I think that there's there's going to be people who argue it um some I think are going to line up a little bit more on the conspiracy side of things and then some of it are just kind of like people who are genuinely nervous about it because they've been burned before, or they've seen it play out in a way that hasn't been very good. And so I, everybody comes from their own unique walk. And so I I just, I understand it and I get it. And you know, someone's, uh, we get emails all the time at Hanu of like, how do you use this data? Like, are you selling it to where we're very transparent? Like we, we're an open book about it. And we're like, no, like we, we, we don't right now. Am I saying that we would never sell it? Um I don't know. I, I doubt we will. I just don't see a lot of benefit. We we need it internally so we can make the product better. And we're publishing research studies anyway. So I don't know what we would have a reason to sell it for, but yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely align with, with what you both said. And I think there's a couple other things to look at, like, you know, the advertising side of things, like they're using your data to then advertise certain things to you, but mm. maybe this is naive as well, but I'm like, okay, so they saw my sleep data. So they're going to advertise a sleep mask, like yeah. a sleep pill. Like, I, you know, I'm not like an impulse buyer. So like bring on the ads. It's not going to like impact me <laughs> versus the other end of the spectrum, like the genetics, right? 23 and me, I think it's been yeah. the big one that has yes. been slapped on the wrist for what they're doing is like, yeah. And in, in 50 years from now, is my insurance going to drop me? Because they say, you know, we saw in your genetics when you were 18 that this was going to happen or I don't Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Definitely I have an interesting to-
2: conversation. Yeah, what's up, Totally, Molly? yeah, no, I, I similar to what you uh, pointed out with the 23andMe, I think if anything, the one area that I do have more pause for, even though I have tested my genetics in multiple companies, but I have not done the 23andMe, um, and there's certain areas or certain, I've seen heightened concerns or question marks or red flags for clients on the genetic testing in particular. So I think you do make a good call out on there to just ask some of those questions. Like Dr. J said, people say, oh, what are you doing with this data? What can we expect? You can be an informed consumer and then make that choice You know, depending on what comes back from the individual company. And then the second thing, I was just also at a mastermind, I guess masterminds galore. And um, one of the takeaways from this one was just about data in general and protection of your data across the intranets, if you will, Uh, and was speaking to, there's literally this one guy that's like a real life Mr. Robot, essentially, if you've ever seen Mr. Robot, like a real life hacker that has, you know, hacking since he was like 14 and now is used with the military or the US government um, on being able to to kind of safe house or or to be able to protect the vulnerabilities of different uh, governmental agencies. So really, really knowledgeable in the realm of hacking into your data. So if that's a concern of people being able to, if you want to, if you're like a public figure might be targeted for a particular reason and people want to use your data against you, then some of his go-to kind of takeaways were just so basic. It's almost funny, but two factor across the board, one password, which actually I have on my list of things to do to fully switch everything over to one password, not LastPass. Sorry, LastPass. They've been hacked a bunch of times. So different (laughs) different, uh, ways to protect yourself in addition to being informed, I think could be an area to like how to navigate this world of a lot of information. And I mean... Just a couple of minutes ago, I was talking about getting data from your toilet. I mean, my gosh, we're we're going into a future where we're going to have a lot of data. So I do full think that's Jetsons. an important. Yeah, full Jetsons. Yep. I do think that's an important kind of call out, Renee. That's really great. And I think maybe that would go to just the last question to kind of round this out. Um, as we kind of do think fully about the whole world of data, and for any listeners of maybe they're newer on this world of in the into the world of kind of quote unquote biohacking or exploring, you know, their health through metrics and understanding certain pitfalls and kind of ways to think about this. So, uh, in the world of sleep, one of the things I see for a lot of people is the nocebo effect, where if they wake up and then they look, oh no, I got a 62 in my readiness and a you know 59 or whatever, right? These numbers numbers then uh leading to a particular way that they're approaching their days and curious if you all have any um strategies or approaches that you suggest for your clients or for yourself or both on how to navigate data and be empowered and not necessarily fully at the effect of
3: mm, yeah i i think i'm on i think i'm on record saying this a bunch but i i think it bears repeating that for me it is a part of my morning routine, at least initially, to not check any data whatsoever. Mm. Uh, my routine, generally, I've changed this a little bit. Um, I, I was trying to think about how much to disclose and not disclose. I used to take a shower every morning, and I yes. don't anymore. Um, and the reason being is just simply because I was like, I don't know why am I ta- I'm taking a shower? Like, I immediately go to the gym. Like after I'm done with like my morning routine, I go to the gym and I get nasty and sweaty. Why am I taking a shower? Like, I was to quote unquote wake up. And I was like, I don't need it. Uh, But when I was doing that, and I'll I'll talk about my routine now, if you are someone who showers first thing in the morning when you get up, for me, that was always my check-in time. So I would get out of bed, no data review, like phone stays, you know, away from me. I go into the shower and I took like basically like a full body scan. And it was like, how am I feeling right now? Are my muscles feeling tense? Do I feel recovered? Do I feel energetic? Just kind of like doing this constant subjective body scan prior to anything else. Because I found to your point, Molly, if I, I used to jump first thing, like my the first thing I would do would be phone open aura score every single morning. Mm. You know, from the time I, you know, got aura back in whenever they came out, was that 2015, 2016, whenever it was. Yeah. Uh, I I did it every morning. And I would live out the self-fulfilling prophecy of that score. 62 sure. of no, 65 bad yeah, day done. Uh, no no need to work out low yeah. <laughs> energy and it is it's kind of those head scratcher but it shows you the powerful effects psychologically and behaviorally that checking this data can have if you haven't done any of the other check-ins it's kind of moving way too far on that side of the spectrum whereas for me it became and still is a part of my morning routine to check in first i have found that i and pretty good about kind of you know I, I've seen so much data now and I've checked in so many times. I'm pretty good about kind of knowing generally where the range of that score is going to oh, be anyway. That's,
2: the, so, goal. that's the goal. Amazing. That's, yeah.
3: that's, that's the goal. So for me, I'm basically using that data to confirm and be like, you know, I, and you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm good enough to know like, oh, how much percent of my night was in deep or rim. I'm not sure if I can assess that, but sure. overall, like I, I'm generally know where I'm going to be. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, it's always saying, how do I check in <clears throat> first? So it doesn't lead me down the pathway of a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, of checking later. So, I mean, sorry, of, 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 of checking in objectively first. So that's my routine that I do every morning without fail. Like if you catch me like looking at my aura score or, you know, even looking at Hanu prior to me checking into the body, uh, then I would say that's a that's that's an odd day. It doesn't happen very mm. often. Maybe, maybe it happens every once in a while, but not very often.
2: I <laughs> love that. Okay. And Renee and Lauren, any uh tips for people? I, I, I do the same. I and I
0: love that practice. And now <laughs> sometimes I want my aura to upload because I take it out of airplane mode, but I don't want to look at it. So I have this practice where I like open, but I don't look at the app. I like turn my head and then close it so that it charges (laughs) and uploads, but I don't see it immediately. (laughs) But yeah, I think the check-ins are so important and maybe like on a larger cycle, like a macro cycle, cycling off of something like your aura ring or your CGM and seeing if you can kind of do that, that check-in guess where do you intrinsically know what your score is going to be without that data to confirm it? And for me, that's the lifelong goal. Can I build so much in intrinsic accountability and like this very deep relationship with how my body is performing and the feedback it's giving me without the data? So it's like in the off, I'll call it like the off season. So you're, you take yeah. the CGM off, you're not wearing it. Are you so conditioned and in tune with your body's signals that you know, like Dr. J said, I you said you can kind of assume what your score is going to be without it. Can you do that like lifelong? So really training for the off-season rather than training for the in-season. Can we train for the off-season so that that communication is just so dialed in? So at the mac- macro cycle, like planning for those off periods, planning for a data fast planning to have those more subjective conversations so that at some point we can get off of it. And I think there's always going to be value in checking back in because the body's dynamic. We change, we get older. So it's not like this experiment's going to end here and now. Like I do think in a year, if you haven't had a CGM on, you should probably put one back on. In five years from now, you should check back in with all of this stuff. But for me, the goal is to train. I've never said that before. Train for the off season.
3: <laughs> I like it. Though. Coin it. Put it on a shirt. Tattoo. Yeah
0: yeah exactly <laughs>
1: did you have some mushrooms today or something you're like coming up with all these new terms
0: <laughs> i am in a protocol i'm in a protocol Ooh. yeah brain is on fire <laughs> yeah exactly
1: <laughs> uh, uh yeah i mean i guess i'm kind of like both of you too with the waiting to check the data it kind of happens a little bit more naturally because i put everything in airplane mode so I would say if you yeah. have any devices, putting it in airplane mode for me just helps because in the morning, I'm not going to immediately go and like take everything off and plug it in. I just, I'm not going to do that. So I naturally don't see my data for at least an hour or two. So waiting. And then as far as like getting the good scores and bad scores, I think it's so dependent on your personality. Like I think just know yourself if it... If you're really impacted by those scores, like, yeah, like Lauren said, do a data fast for a while. Maybe just use like a notebook as your daily check in for a while. For me, it doesn't bother me. I kind of laugh at my scores sometimes. Like the other morning, Sunday morning, I woke up and I'll be honest, Saturday night, went out for my husband's birthday, had a couple cocktails, slept in an extremely hot, torturous hotel room. It was (laughs) a nightmare. The hotel thermostat hack did not work. Sad story. But anyways, I woke up and my score was 78 readiness. I'm like, yeah, that's not not as bad as I was expecting. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of feel like you get both. Like you get the side of like, that wasn't as bad as I was expecting, but then you also get, I don't feel that crappy today. So I feel like that both ends of the spectrum kind of balance each other out over time. I mean, that's what I've seen in five years of checking the data. And you know, I, I think also having the uh, aura ring and the bio strap, seeing the discrepancies in the scores,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. you
1: have to laugh a little bit because when yes. they don't match up, you're just like, this is entertaining for me. Yeah. Yes. Entertaining.
0: <laughs> I love that you said that because I think it's such a good practice in compassion, self-compassion, being able to laugh at yourself and have that ease and not, one, like get so wrapped up in a particular narrative and potentially create a stress response. And- I'm laughing at you saying that because I was singing the sound of music this morning on my nature walk. And <laughs> there was a p- particular line in that song, the sound of music, that really like got stuck in my head when she sent, uh, she sings, laugh like a brook as it trips and falls over stones on its way. Like this is a mm. natural pattern in nature that nature kind of laughs when it trips and falls, but it keeps going. It like stays in flow. And that was like my profound <laughs> morning microdosing moment. But I was like, Ooh. we have to. We have to laugh at ourselves. Like, what? what's the worst that happens? I think the worst that happens is that we create a stress response and a poor n- narrative.
2: Mm. So, why? Yeah. You gotta get on this protocol that you're on.
0: <laughs> singing, the hills and, yeah. are alive. <laughs> no, I, I was skipping music. down the street singing, the hills are alive. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the neighbors <laughs> are
1: calling the cops. They're like, That's oh,
0: she's <laughs> at it again. <laughs>
3: It's 4 30 in the morning and Lauren's going at it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Amazing. Wow. Okay. Well, um, that's fantastic. These are so many great, you know, kind of uh, insights and perspectives. Oh, I, I guess I should share mine too. One practice yes. that I've been loving right now has been a, I, I actually haven't mentioned this on any of my podcasts yet, but a, nighttime or bedroom iPad. This is my thing. So it's always. let me explain. So basically um, what this is, it's, there's, I have this concept of bookends to your days. So you want to bookend your day where you have kind of, uh, as Lauren and Renee were putting it on their uh, social media, Dr. Quiet, uh, so that you have your kind of your own piece on each side of your bookends of your day. So morning and night. And so for me, one of the uh, aspects that I do to really ensure that I have structures where I'm not using my phone on either side is this bedroom iPad. And so the iPad has like nothing on it. And it's always on airplane mode. It basically, it's always on the red, you know, kind of setting the color filters. And from that, I, it just effectively is like a book. It's like a Kindle book. And then it has alarms, you know, so you can have that by your bedside no EMFs, the whole thing. And that's been a great way to one unwind in the evening two to have no like kind of um, uh, the addictive draw to the phone in the early morning hours. So it's just one other structure so that I'm not going to the phone as quickly as my brain would like to. So that's been a really helpful piece to have some of that, uh, you know, uh, kind of buffering in between when you first wake up and you're going through kind of sleep inertia and you're still in this kind of twilight state going from a sleep state to an awake state, your brain is not fully, you know, firing at all cylinders. So to then have an imprint of you know, what could be deemed as a stress response for some people. I think that can be a, just a helpful practice to have a little bit of time. But I really love what you said, Renee, because I think this is so important for, especially for my people from the sleep um, world. There can be a real tendency for perfectionistic tendencies or qualities when we're having uh, that can lead and be a contributing factor to sleep issues. So, there can be a tendency to say, oh, no, if I don't have the crown or if I don't have, you know, whatever metric or wearable you're using, if it's not deemed as good or positive to have a problem with the information. But I think that's one of the breakthroughs to actually having great sleep from a sleep perspective is to actually know that you are never going to have fantastic sleep across the board every single night. And the freedom that comes from that is just fantastic. So I think just having that at play, being able to laugh, I think that's that's such a huge and powerful and, in you know, enlightened state to come from is like Buddha Renee, uh, you know, I think that we can all take on a little bit of that. So I thank you for kind of, uh, you know, closing us out with that sense or that statement or that approach and framework. So. One, thank you all for our fourth roundtable. I hope that the, for the listener, there was lots of gems in there. And I think we really fulfilled on that. I hope. And for anyone that might have questions for any of us, if we didn't, you know, go in deep enough on certain things, please reach out to any of us. I know like I'm clear, these are just fantastic humans and really committed to making a difference with people. So if you have any questions, reach out, we can make ourselves available to kind of clarify or what have you. Um, but just thank you all. This is amazing. So inspired by all of you. And I'm going to be up in, you know, my VO2 max, uh, you know, awareness and you know, just all the maybe get on the microdosing. dosing. Lots of takeaways from this conversation. Thanks for hosting, yes. Molly. Oh, well, thank you all. This is fantastic. More to come. Yes. Thank you.
1: Definitely. There we go. All right. Thanks for joining us. We will see you next time.
0: Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with your physician or healthcare professional.